You're listening to the Ship Bob Operator Series. Each week, your host, Casey Armstrong, e-com veteran, is joined by founders, operators, and insiders who are bringing along their stories and data to give you the exclusive inside scoop and tactics from those who have been there, done it, and gotten their hands dirty. You can tune in for a live recording Wednesdays. Head to operators.shipbob.com for the details. But until then, enjoy this audio replay. Welcome to episode 23. We have this and three more until we're done with our our first season of our operator series. Officially doing it for six months now. Welcome back. Everybody, you know the drill. Drop in where you're dialing in from. I'm here in Orange County, California. Nick likes to show off that he's in Cape Cod. Uh, (laughs) On Cape Cod, sorry. It's it's been like six months, Casey. It's it's on Cape. Come on. I'm going to correct you. (laughs) On the Cape. I'll introduce Sharon and Jordan shortly, but where, where are you both calling in from today? I'm actually calling in from Vegas. I just relocated about two weeks ago with everything that's going on in the world. Living in my tiny apartment in LA was just not the right choice for me. So I'm out in Vegas with family. And I'm in Santa Monica. Awesome. We, we actually have a coworker that moved out there she's, recently as well. She, um, speaking of her, she's online right now. Oh, actually. Yeah, there's Carly. Nice. We've got Chicago, some, some Austin. Now you guys get clean cut, Casey, also. Until last week, my hair was down to my shoulders because of COVID and finally wow. finally chopped it off. So I might need some hair extensions as well. I um, love we missed that. Yeah. yeah. Well, you didn't miss a whole lot. So um, I was sick of Nick trolling me. Here we go. More people from Vegas, some Chicago, uh, Toronto. We'll see where everybody else is calling in from. So to kick this off, I believe we have some some giveaways. I know that uh, Farah.ai, which is a technology partner of ours, Nick will drop some info in there. They're offering for the winner of the giveaway, I think a free year. And then Nick will throw in some other cool giveaways we've got going on for whoever asked the most questions and, and the best questions. But to, to open this up, we have Sharon Pack and Jordan Wynn. They're the co-founders of INH Hair, which is a premium hair extension brand based in LA. So welcome, both of you. To get started with INH, because I'm usually personally not in the hair extension market for myself, when Nick sent it over, you know, I was like, insert name here. So talk me through that. How'd you, how'd you all come up with that and why? Jordan, go ahead. I feel like you know this story like the back of your hand. You get this question a lot, like, where did the name yeah. come from? Because it is a really weird name. Yeah, it's one of our most asked questions. And it's caused us some issues because on yeah. our first order, like one of our shipments, it said insert name here. And like the freight forwarder thought that they forgot to put in the name. Like they thought it was just empty, like insert name here. And so a bunch of our stuff got held up. Um, but <laughs> we we came up with the name insert name here because we really liked the transformational aspect of hair. It can totally transform your look. And everybody always talks about like, I guess it's like a saying on social media when you put on like a new ponytail or a new wig or something and everybody's like, ooh, who is she? And you can kind of be whoever. And so we liked the idea of inserting here and we named all of the wigs and hair pieces like people's names. And so, yeah, you can kind of just create whatever vibe you want. It's a form of self-expression. You can be whoever you want to be. I like that. It actually reminds me of, I'm going to forget the alter ego names, but I was reading, I guess I'll open up on the weird stuff that I read, but it was all, all around channeling kind of like your alter ego to exactly. put yourself into like an uncomfortable position. And so it was all around how Beyonce and then how Adele took a lot of this from Beyonce on how when they'd go on stage, they'd be in these like massive arenas and they would just kind of, you know, it's, it's intimidating. And so they would channel, you know, their inner alter ego. And so I saw actually on your guys' website as well, it says, find your alter ego as a tagline. So Talk me through how you guys came up with that. I guess kind of one of the origin stories of of INH is that uh, we noticed that there was a white space in the hair category because a lot of people were like talking about hair as of late, but before it's kind of been a taboo subject, but with people like Kylie Jenner and Ariana Grande and, and just a ton of people coming out more about the fact that their hair is not their real hair. So we just love the idea of being able to totally change it up and and like stepping outside of your comfort zone. And we wanted to provide products that allowed you to do that. So super high quality, trendy pieces that you can apply at home and you can totally change up your look and have a different alter ego of every day. 
And kind of just branching off of that, like Jordan Mm -hmm. and I have been in the beauty industry for about six years and makeup has the same effect. Like you put a full face of makeup on and you feel like a different person. You're like, oh, today I feel saucy. Today I feel really sweet. And hair has the same effect as makeup does. It's like the dialed up version of it. Um, So that's where we kind of like went off the whole find your alter ego motto. So similar to makeup, and maybe I'm actually completely wrong here, but similar to makeup, I would assume with hair extensions, when people are wearing them, they don't necessarily know, you know, who the brand is. And of course, brands extremely important in like the cosmetic and the beauty space. And so you mentioned Ariana Grande, who I believe wore some of your products in the music video of hers. So how did that come to fruition? And then how does the word spread of, you know, what products they were using? The crazy thing about this whole Ariana Grande thing is we had no idea it was going to happen. And Ariana Grande, she's well known for her ponytail. Like everyone knows Ariana Grande, that ponytail is glued to her head. Her actual hair is really, really curly and short, but we don't know that because she constantly has a ponytail on. And Vogue was doing a feature on um, Ariana Grande and her In My Head music video. And they had reached out to her hairstylist, Josh, who happened to reach out to us and was like, hey, Vogue, we're doing this shoot with Vogue. Um, we need ponytails for the backup dancers and for Ariana. We would love if you guys provide a product for it. And in the beginning, we were like, there's no way they're going to put INH on Ariana Grande, but like, sure, why not? So we shipped it out. And maybe like a couple of weeks later, we got an email from Vogue being like, hey, like here are the assets. Like it's going live X day. They credited us, tagged us. And we were only a couple of months in into the business. So we were, we were absolutely floored that this even happened. But yeah, Word spread because there aren't that many options in the hair space. There really aren't. If you look at our competitor landscape, there just really isn't anyone doing what we're doing. So it was kind of an easy win, to be honest. That's insane because she's obviously massive. And so I'm not surprised that, you know, you got to, the opportunity arises, so you got to send them what they asked for, but you're like, okay, there's no way this is real. Like how did, (laughs) how did they even like, I guess why and how they connect with you guys in the first place? We're actually have been pretty good friends with Josh, her hairstylist, because Jordan and I have been in the beauty industry for six years. He actually had did a shoot for us when we were both at ColourPop and he was the hairstylist for that shoot. We were friends on Instagram. Yeah. And he was an assistant stylist for Chris Appleton, who was previously doing Ariana's hair, but then he moved into Chris's role and he had DM'd us saying this and we were... I don't know. It's, I, th- I guess it's just like us being in the industry for so long and like having all these connections within like artists and makeup artists and hairstylists. It just kind of happened. So you mentioned ColourPop where I don't know if you both met in college or if you met at ColourPop or if it was some combination of both. What motivated, I guess, what were some of the learnings that you took from ColourPop then into INH? And then also what was the catalyst to leave ColourPop and start your own brand? Sharon and I did actually meet in college, but we weren't really friends. We were in like the same dorm and then we both worked a ton and we're kind of like nerds in school. And so we didn't socialize and we didn't really have any other friends. So we ended up being partners all the time by like default because nobody else, like we didn't know anybody else to be partners with. So we just, we're the loners who got buddied up. And then I started interning for ColourPop like two years before they actually launched and helped concept and launch the brand. And then when we got to like launch day, they were like, we need another one of you. And I tried to get all my friends to apply. Nobody would apply. Nobody wanted to work for a startup in Oxnard. So then I was talking to my mom and she was like, why don't you recommend somebody who you work really well with, which now like fast forward eight years, thank God I went that route because we ended up obviously working together for a very long time, very closely. So then we were the first two of, we were the first two employees at ColourPop and then the first two of five for several years. It was really cool because the parent company of ColourPop is called Seed Beauty and underneath of that, they have like KKW, Kylie Cosmetics, Soul, Tati Beauty. Basically like the, all the biggest like indie e-com beauty brands that you could think of is under Seed Beauty. And when we yeah. had joined, it was not a thing yet. They were really focused on, they had another business. Like they were like, oh, we'll see how this like project goes. Dora and I like, and Dora and I were like these millennials who like live on Instagram or like social media and like influencer nerds. Like we like know it like the back of our hand and we just applied what is so innate to us to a business. And that's where like the magic really happened on top of the $5 price point, which is super approachable for uh, millennials and like younger people. So then with Seed Beauty kind of coming about, we got so much experience launching brands. We basically launched like four different brands while we were there. We just had all the practice, practice, I guess you could say, when we launched INH. And, and we learned that we love launching brands. Yeah, we love building brands. I think that's like 
a really interesting aspect because Jordan and I, we are obsessed with the beauty space. We actually love makeup, which is also weird because when we first started at ColourPop, we both didn't wear any makeup at all. But then at the end of the six years, we became obsessed with it. So when we were presented with the opportunity to launch our own business, which cue our third partner, Kevin, we had met him at BeautyCon and um, he DM'd her and I, he slid into our DMs and was like, what are you guys up to lately? And Jordan and I were like, I was like, did Kevin DM you? And she's like, yeah, he DM'd me. Like, should we go to lunch and see what's up? And we're all like, okay, sure, why not? So we go to this dinner and he straight up just says, I really want to build brands and I know what you guys did at ColourPop, like, let's do something together. And at this point, Jordan and I had multiple conversations about doing something together. I think we both felt like we kind of reached our like cap at ColourPop and also we want to do our own thing. Um, so then at the time, we had been bouncing off ideas up until that point of meeting Kevin and Jordan was like, what if we do a sofa company, like furniture? It's so hard finding furniture. And I was like, dude, but then how are we going to scale that? And then the storage, probably not ideal. Then we just like went through so many crazy ideas. And then one day she texted me, she's like, wigs, what about wigs? And that's when it was like the light bulb moment for both of us. And we were like, oh my God, you're right. Because the Kylie Jenners of the world, Ariana Grande, you don't even know what their real hair looks like anymore because they're constantly changing it out, right? But then we realized, wow, but there aren't that many brands that are accessible for like a normal you and I. Like the piece that the Ariana Grande and Kylie Jenner are wearing, they're thousands and thousands of dollars, hand-tied, human hair, specially bleached and colored by a stylist, like thousands and thousands of dollars totally not accessible for like a normal Jordan and I. So then we started really getting really knee deep into like the research phase. Jordan was ordering wigs on Amazon. She got the package. She like would text me and call me and be like, oh my God, wait, let's do this unboxing together. We do FaceTime with each other. And she would give me a real life, real time unboxing situation. And you'd be like, wow, this is so cheap. Like it smells like burnt plastic. The root is like sharpied on with like a black Sharpie. Like this just looks like crap, blah, blah, blah. And that's when we really just got obsessed with the category, the hair category, because we knew it had the same effect as makeup did, but there just weren't that many options out there. So that's how INH kind of came about. <laughs> so, so I have a ton of questions. Let's first go to your third co-founder. So what was his background then? And what motivated you both to want to partner with him? We had met Kevin at BeautyCon previously. He was one of like the original founders in BeautyCon. And so he did have a lot of experience in the beauty space. And then he also like managed a bunch of major influencers, like some of the top, top influencers on YouTube. And so he was just really savvy in influencers and the beauty space in general. And that's kind of how he heard about us. We kept running into him all the time and then eventually slid into our DMs. So you mentioned you love launching new products. And I know some of the questions we got in the, from the audience prior and something from Maria here on like bootstrapping tips going from zero to one is so difficult. Like, you know, it's tough to grow a business no matter what, but going from just that ideation phase to proving that you actually have a business that's worth putting time in, into and trying to scale is so difficult. And so I, I love the story of what you got at ColourPop, which is you were getting paid to launch brands over and over and, and bring a lot of what you were, like you said, innately doing anyways, which is really like the future of go to market. So talk me through that. Like what are, what were some like the biggest lessons learned on going from like that zero to one phase? I think the number one thing that I learned from ColourPop is building a community. Having a sticky community is all you need in building a brand. And that's when you know, like, oh man, like people do care. They're emotionally invested in our product and beyond the product, they're emotionally invested in the brand. That was number one because ColourPop has an insane, insane avid fan group. They have like a Facebook group called ColourPop Fanatics and there's hundred thousand people in there that are just talking about how much they love ColourPop all day, every day, sharing pictures and like unboxings and just, just, there's just like a sticky community that exists there. And that's what we took away and started building out immediately for INH. We were like, okay, how do we build a sticky community? And you know what that meant? That meant Jordan and I commenting and DMing every single customer, just being like, thank you so much, leaving them videos. Like it was a lot of like scrappy work but scrappy work that paid off and ultimately built a super solid foundation for us to like scale like the community. Because once you kind of evangelize like this core group, they're going to go tell their friends and then they're going to go tell their friends. So it becomes less work on your end, but the amount of time that you put in out of the gate is so key. 
the other thing is that when we first launched, like it wasn't, we, we went live with like packaging that we didn't really love. It was like a really small assortment. Like we went live with something really small that maybe we weren't obsessed with. And, but we just like marketed it really hard and like on the community aspect, really, really push, push the community side. And so I think that when I've talked to a lot of founders, um, or people who want to start something, they get like so caught up in the nitty gritty that they never actually get to launch. And I think that's a big thing. Like bootstrapping tip is just like freaking do it. And it's something is better than nothing. Even if you're not that proud of it yet, you can like build. I love that. Just do it. And so you mentioned community, which of course is huge, but I I don't know if it's tougher to go from zero to one in a product or if it's tougher to build a community (laughs) because that's not easy as well. And so how do you view... I guess, just getting the community off the ground and then also sustaining the community. Because I've done that as well in different different businesses where you're building these huge communities and then you get to a point where like you can't moderate it and handle it all yourself. And so you have to start bringing in others and whether they're like mods who love the community anyways to like police what's going on. How'd you juggle that? So one thing that we have on the INH side is we have a exclusive Facebook group and it's called INH Babes and it's closed off. You have to be invited and accepted into the group. We currently have about 5,000 people and they're the VIPs of the VIPs of our customer base. And how we got that off the ground originally, it, it takes a lot of work. It's not going to happen overnight. I mean, it's going to require just like constantly banging, bang, bang, banging until, you know, it really does lift off. And that meant Jordan and I going in there and doing lives when only 20 people are tuning in or like commenting and liking everything that is happening in there. And then also we did, um, we had random acts of kindness where we would pick random customers who were just like avid. They're just constantly buying our things. We would send them random gifts, not even related to INH, just being like, Hey, we saw on your Facebook that you're having trouble with da da da. Like hope this like brings you a smile or whatever. And that just goes such a long way. So once we kind of built out the INH babes page, um, we started noticing these super fans. For example, Chelsea, who's our super fan, she was commenting on every single customer post in that page. She was liking, she was sending me personal DMs with suggestions and just like ideas, buying every single launch. She actually is now our our head moderator. And then now she has an army of baby moderators who are constantly liking and like feeding the engagement on the page. Because think about it, like if somebody's going to go out of the way to post something on that INH babe Facebook page, like they want some sort of like interaction and engagement, right? Mm-hmm. So having like these six army of moderators, like liking and commenting and like uplifting you and just telling you like, you look badass, like that's going to be a good feeling. And that's going to evangelize them to be another moderator possibly in the future. Mm-hmm. I love that where you're just rewarding your community and allowing them to grow with you and, and bring them along for the ride. And so a question here from Jonathan is to take a step back how did you initially build the community? Like, how, how'd you get that first handful of people? So how we did it initially is we extracted a list of our top customers and then just sent them, did an email blast with a personal invite to the Facebook group. And it, um, it's all in the copy and like the feel good moment. Like, hey, like mm-hmm. you've only been selected out of a hundred of our customers to be in this VIP Facebook group to help us with product development. And like, I don't know what not, but like they want this exclusive, like exclusive aspect of it. So writing those components down in the message. We also found people who already like just organically were buying the product multiple times. And that was like the basis of the community is we were like, people are already interested. Now we just need to like convert them in a bigger way to be like, they're going to start building the community for us. kind of. And I love how you mentioned too, where, I mean, you got you have to believe in the vision of what you're building. And so you're putting out the same level of high quality content or live video or whatever it may be when there's 20 people watching or there's, let's say now, thousands or tens of thousands of people watching. And so, you know, it's, it's definitely believing in that vision. So you mentioned your Facebook page. I know on Instagram, you have close to 300,000 followers there. How do you approach the different channels and like where you should spend your time, especially early on, because like time is, you know, arguably your most important asset and still is. Yeah. I feel like a lot of brands, they focus mainly on Instagram, which is great for like a branding element, but Facebook is where like the VIPs live. Like those are the people who care about you and they're, they're going to, I think Instagram maybe feels a little unapproachable for a lot of people. Like, and I always forget this. Instagram feels unapproachable. Yeah. I I feel like, I feel like Jordan and I always a little, we forget a little bit just because we like live and breathe on Instagram, but a lot of people, it's not an approachable platform. Like you're posting pictures and selfies of yourself. Like that requires some balls to do that. Right. So 
I think for us is what we realize is Facebook is where the ethos and like the stickiness and because you can communicate people with words and it's just a different, I don't know. It's, it's not on your level. feed. It's like yeah. locked in your feed. So people are more willing to like interact and engage yeah. with you. And I think maybe on Instagram, it's, it's not that it's like, it's unapproachable to post your own content, but then you're also, it's a lot of pressure for like a brand or an influencer or a consumer to post directly to their feed. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. And then how do you approach other social networks like Pinterest or TikTok or Twitter? So Twitter is where the Gen Z kids live. And we approach that. It, all the platforms are very different. Twitter is very dry, major personality and like saucy and funny. That's where Twitter, like the humor is on Twitter. Facebook is where like the stickiness, like feel good, like uplifting type of content is. And then Instagram is like the branded visual, like this is what you want people to take away from and think like INH is a badass brand type of vibe. So you said that Gen Z is more on Twitter. So you think people like younger people are now moving towards Twitter versus some of the other platforms? Yeah, for sure. Why do you think that? I think it's because there's like this dry humor aspect to it. Um, and it's just more real time. Like I even find myself going more to, to Twitter lately because it's just so much quicker. Like if there's an air helicopter flying above my, uh, my apartment, I'm like, what's going on in LA. And I look into it and be like, Oh, someone's on the loose and they're trying to catch this person. Like there's nowhere else you can get this information except for Twitter. It is crazy like that. I know. Cause you both, you know, spend a lot of time in Southern California and, and still live there. And, and I'm, I'm here as well. And so even like things like earthquakes, if something happens, it's like, that's definitely the first place I look. Cause that's where I'm going to get real time information. So something that we ch- were chatting about off air, right before we jumped online, which Sharon, I'm really glad you corrected us on this. We mentioned, you know, going from zero to 1 million in your first year and then doing, you know, let's say 2 mil after that. Actually, the numbers are even much more impressive. And so you went from zero to 3 million your first year. And I believe you're on pace to do 20 mil this year, which is insane. So I'm not really even sure where to start there. But let's talk through, you know, getting that first sale and then maybe hitting that first million or how are you able to really crack that 3 million mark in the first year? I think our, our first sale was actually really funny because we did our first launch and we we're all waiting like by the computers and literally the only people who got online were our family members. It was like all of our moms bought wigs and we were like, okay. And that was pretty much how it was for the first like two or three weeks. We were getting only family sales and we were kind of like, I, I think we were all kind of bummed, but then of course, like how, how are these people going to find you? Cause we weren't talking about it at all. So it definitely took us a while to gain some traction. And I think that one thing that is really important is you you're putting in like all these little building blocks and half the time you're doing them, you're like, this isn't making a difference and it's easy to get disheartened. But then I think once they start adding up and accumulating is, is when you really start to get the traction. So it did take us a long time to start to get traction on Instagram and all of our other social platforms. And because all of it is essentially like trial and error, like how, what are people engaging with? Like originally we thought we were going to be more of this like Pinteresty brand with like long curly hair and like just very pretty and glam. And then it turned out that we were like the, what was resonating with the people who were following us and buying our products was more of this like um, makeup junkie as you would call them or like super Gen Z millennials. And it wasn't about like pretty, it was about like edgy and trendy and fun and trying new things. And and it's very expressive versus like the basic beautiful curls that I really wanted to be posting. And so I think that a big part of it is, is trial and error and knowing that even if you can't see the progress like real time, that eventually it does add up and it pays off in a big way, but you just have to be willing to like grow up for the first couple months. And kind of branching off what Jordan was saying, I remember we had like not a huge fight, but originally we were going back and forth on this is our girl, this is our girl. And I was like, but this is what's working for us. And it's just being super aware. Like, what are people engaging with on your Instagram? I've noticed a lot of brands, they just keep posting the same content. And I'm like, this, no one cares about this type of content. Optimize it. See what people are interacting with. It might not be what you want it to be, but it's what's mm-hmm. resonating with your audience. So just optimize, optimize, optimize in that direction. And maybe it's funny memes. Maybe it's one thing that we noticed that works for us is pictures of nails. Like nail inspo has nothing to do with hair, but it's a specific type of nail that we've realized. Mm. We've experimented and A-B tested all types of nails. And we realized short nails don't do anything. They really like bedazzled with jeweled and like long with hot pink flames on it or something like that. But it's this mm. constant optimization um, that requires a lot of testing. 
So here's one of my favorite questions we've had over the last 23 episodes coming in from the comments from Jonathan. I don't know if we've got this comment before, but he asked if you're hiring. So I I love that question. Honestly, that that growth is beyond impressive. So congrats on that. I'm excited to drill down even further. A question here from Abius is, is the content or maybe like the the visuals you put out there, are you guys doing that professionally? Are you doing that on your cell phone? I, I feel like those are almost blending as one anyways with like the new iPhones, but how do you approach that? 100% cell phone content. And it has been the same for us when we were at ColourPop. Polished campaign imagery does not perform well. Looks beautiful, really expensive, but does not perform. Where can, you literally can't use it anywhere but your website. And I, yeah. and I think this is pretty much... maybe it's not for every single brand, but it's been on majority of brands that I've like worked with or talked with is and and it's hard, I think, because like the founders or the marketing team, or even like the creative team, like they want this beautiful content so bad, like they work so hard on this product, and they want to get a professional photographer, and they want to do the whole photo shoot. And then it never performs. So I think that's kind of even similar to the what is your feed going to look like, like, you kind of have to separate yourself and be like, what do they want it to look like? Like, what does Mm -hmm. they want the content to look like? And it doesn't have to be professional. So to go into like the product development side and product sourcing side really quickly before we get into more of the maybe fun stuff, let's start with product sourcing. And so Jordan, it sounds like, you know, you were buying a ton of things online and between the both of you, you're checking them out and unboxing them together. And I'm sure there was a lot of really bad products. So how do you really nail that? And even your first product, like you said, is, you know, not what you would put out today. So how do you find your first supplier and, and really approach that side of the business? We were super lucky because we found like a really amazing product development director. And she's literally, even now that we've been in the hair space and we've been trying to build like our product team, she's like an expert. Like she's, she's unmatched. So I say it's like very serendipitous that we even met her because she, we met her like almost immediately and she turned out to be this total pro and she really helped us like make the connections with a lot of hair factories, Sharon and Kevin, because when we met with Kevin versus then when we launched the brand, it was like four five months from like chatting about it to launch. And in that time period, um, Sharon and Kevin actually flew to China and like met a manufacturer, like designed the whole first pieces and, and everything like that. And so it was a very fast period and there has been like a lot of adjustments and stuff like that due to COVID. But for the most part, we've been with the original factories that we originally met. Okay. So you still manufacture in China? Yeah. Yeah. In, yeah, in Asia. Even when Kevin and I went to China, I think that also is really helpful is when you meet your vendors face to face and build that relationship, especially if you're working with an Asian partner, like there's like a cultural business relationship that needs to be established. Kevin and I did the whole Baiju, we ate grasshoppers, did all that. And now we we almost (laughs) died with alcohol poisoning, but we made a genuine relationship with our vendors. And I think that has come a long way because they've been so forgiving. And like Jay said, going from zero to 3 million in year one, there was a lot of inventory involved. And because we had established this relationship with the factory, they were willing to commit themselves to this growth because originally they were like, mm, well, we don't really know how well you guys are going to do. But then we just sped things up so quickly. They were really flexible, quick. They added new lines if they had to. It was, it, they're fantastic partners. Yeah, they're like true partners. That's been such a common theme for us through all these episodes, which is really creating that relationship and that partnership. And and I'm sure also once they met you in person, you know, they can they see your enthusiasm and they can understand your vision more. You're obviously both rather enthusiastic once you're talking about the brand, which which is huge because that's, you know, the, the energy that people need to to feed off of. So you were dealing with, you know, you're you're buying things overseas, your first time founders, even though you guys had great reps at ColourPop you're seeing this huge influx in sales. So how did you manage cash flow and inventory, you know, even today, but especially early on? It's I mean, there were a lot of struggle. Yeah. I was say, it's, <laughs> been, it's been a struggle. Um, a lot of things have been out of stock for quite some time. Um, and a lot of fighting between, well, not fighting, but like healthy, like where is this, heated when's this coming? Yeah. Heated debates with Jordan, Kevin, and I um, trying to really fit things because it was just growing so fast. We've ha- we had to air things in, not ideal. We would want it on a vessel, but we had to air a ton of inventory in. Yeah, it's honestly, it's been it's been a struggle, but we're getting a hang of it and we're getting a lot better at forecasting, which has been nice. Mm-hmm. And also we've had two or three hero products that have been really like carrying it a little bit for us. And that's been really helpful. I'd love to get the hero products conversation in a second, but 
as much as you're willing to share here, but from like a cash flow perspective, did you do pre-sales or pre-orders after like a certain time once you built up the community? How how'd you manage to juggle that? And then with your supplier, you know, because of course there's different net terms you can negotiate. So how'd you approach that? Hair is tough because they're really particular with net terms. Like they're, it's not like other industries. And so we really struggled there. We did do some pre-sales for some items. But in in some cases, there wasn't anything that we could do because even when we were restocking and we thought like, okay, we got enough inventory, we're going to be okay. By the time it restocked, we were like double in size. And so we kind of just had to accept. And and luckily our followers and like customers really were pretty good with this of understanding that we're just growing really quickly and we would get a wait list. I think a wait list is, is super, super important because they can enter their email. So one, you're collecting emails. And then two, as soon as it drops, they get notified. And in, in a lot of those cases, ours auto notifies as soon as it gets. It's actually kind of a problem we're trying to fix on the back end. But as soon as something restocks, they if they signed up, it auto notifies. And there's been a lot of instances where the products have sold out before Sharon and I even knew they were restocked. And so I think that's been, I mean, it has its pluses and negatives, but I think that those are the two biggest things is pre-sell when you can, but you also don't want to totally mess with the customer because it does suck if you're waiting like six weeks for a product. So we try to keep it to like a much shorter time frame before we're willing to go into pre-order. And then the notify me when restocked has been really helpful. Yeah. And kind of going back to Jay's question about mm-hmm. cash flow. So we're 100% self-funded and we also took out a small loan. That's like 100% dedicated to like inventory. Pretty much it. With going from, you know, three mil to 20 mil, that is just a a massive leap. And so from like a hiring perspective, how did you start approaching that? Because obviously you're balancing that cash flow with, with inventory and everything there as well. We've taken a really unique approach to hiring. And almost, I would say like at the beginning, every single person on the team, aside from me, Sharon, the other co-founder, Kevin, and we had one person in who was helping with like finance and logistics. Otherwise, every single person was an intern. And they were all like school credit interns who most of them were working like three days a week. Some of them were working five days a week. But that's what we had for essentially like the first six months. And then we started hiring some of those interns as they graduated as full-time employees. And now probably 75% of our team are interns turned employees and it's their first job out of school, but they're so, so, so passionate. And they like, we, we, I think we have an amazing, like really fun team culture, but basically our entire team is, is college grads. <laughs> they're like baby Jordan and Sharon circa 20, you know, 10 after we graduated or 2014 after we graduated college. <laughs> yeah. They're all like entrepreneurs at heart. And I think mm-hmm. a lot of them, we got off of our social media platforms, just like posting that we were hiring interns. And I think a lot of people follow us because they're interested in the beauty space or being entrepreneurs or, or working in the beauty space. And so everybody's like, has the entrepreneur drive, which is so important. I like that because it really mirrors your approach with your community as well. It's bringing people along for the ride and being very transparent about that. Speaking of the products, because I actually want to talk about product like development, because again, this is not a space that I'm very familiar with, but you mentioned the hero products. I guess first, are you both wearing, you know, your own products? We are. Yeah. Yes. Two different products. I'm wearing our newest um, pony. It just launched a couple weeks ago. And this is Lola in Honey Blonde. So she matches, you can wear them like to perfectly match your roots or I wear mine a shade lighter sometimes to match my ends because I have an ombre. So talk me through the naming of the pieces. I, I feel like that's got to be one of the more fun parts of the business. It's so stressful. <laughs> yeah, so we do it a couple different ways. One of the ways we do it is like naming after people who are like super inspirational around the hairstyle. That's kind of one approach. Another approach is we let our customers name the products. That's what we've done with basically like the last few rounds. And I think that that's probably like the most fun because then people kind of know something's coming and they know they named it and then they get to wait and see when it launches. And then your hero products, which are the hero products and why do those stand out? And what are those called? Our top products right now is our hair waiver, also a new launch. And then the ponytail that Sharon's wearing and another ponytail that's similar names Mia, but she's straight and really, really long. That's the one that was featured in the Ariana Grande music video. Those are our top products. This one I think is going to be a new bestseller, but we can't keep it in stock long enough to be a bestseller. So (laughs) once we can, (laughs) then it will be. I love it. It's such a, a great problem to have. From like an extremely <laughs> tactical standpoint, are you using like Notify Me or what are you using for that when things go out of stock? Yeah, that's exactly what it is. It's a Shopify like integration. Yeah. Especially with COVID, that's been in such high demand. I know like Rogue Fitness, similarly, yeah. they can't keep like 
you get the notified thing, you go there and it's completely sold out. And so, you know, for, for brands like you all that are just experiencing this massive tidal wave of growth with that growth, like, why do you think that things have really accelerated during COVID? Cause people are not going out and about maybe like on video all the time or, or utilizing social, but how have you been able to capture so much demand during such like a weird time around the world? It's actually the COVID timing has, has been really strong for us. We like doubled in, in growth um, a couple of the months. And I think a big part of it is because a lot of people got really scared and they stopped spending on social, like performance marketing on social. And meanwhile, like we really leaned into social and, and our, like the, the cost, the CPAs were like incredibly, incredibly low. And so it basically, it gave us a huge boost that became our new baseline. And so I think that was, that was really helpful. And I know, and I've talked to a lot of other brands, you know, we're kind of in a similar situation to us during this space. And if you were able to invest at that time, it did, it performed really well. But also I think that during COVID for a lot of people, it's been like a time of experimentation because they're kind of like bored at home. And a lot of the people who like love makeup or love the beauty space, like it, it's like a hobby to them and they love trying new things. It's kind of like being an artist. And so I think it gave a lot of people an opportunity to be even more adventurous than they would be traditionally because they don't have to like see people in person. They got like this confidence boost of I can just do it behind a screen and like kind of gauge reaction. And so even a lot of like our more out there products, performed better than they had been previously because I think people were willing to really experiment. Nice. I like that. Maybe that's why I didn't cut my hair for nine months. So exactly. Well. So you mentioned CPAs and I, I want to get back to that in a minute, but a question here, another one from Maria, which is around remote work. Mm-hmm. And now we're all forced for remote work, but how did you approach that initially? And, and how has your view on maybe in office or remote changed over time? So initially we were all in office, but since we're a startup, we had, we were like all crammed into like two tiny office spaces in a WeWork. And then obviously we went remote. Everybody went remote during that time, our company like more than doubled. And so our team like also more than doubled. So it was, I think the most difficult part of working remote was onboarding during that time, because it's really hard to like integrate them with a culture when it's like just zoom and you're not doing like, nobody's going to lunch. Nobody's doing like coffee, anything like that. Um, but now I think we've gotten in a really good rhythm and I personally kind of prefer working remote. I think especially because Sharon and I have implemented like a lot of culture things that, that people participate in remotely. And so I think that we have like all of our employees have, have been like amazing with engagement as far as like staying passionate, staying driven and really interacting on like Slack. Slack has been really huge. There's been a lot of tools and there's really even cool tools within Slack to like help keep everybody focused and build a culture. Let's talk about that. So tools, people always love the tools. What are some tools maybe within, you know, your, your Shopify instance, or maybe within Slack that you've been able to utilize to help you guys scale? Slack has been huge. Um, we use Atlassian, which is like a project managing tool. Mm. They have like Jira and Confluence, our entire market. Like we just live in Confluence basically. And then we also use Clavio for email. Jordan can kind of speak more on like the SMS side, but SMS has been like really big for us. And then also we've been doing a ton of A-B testing on the website, which has been huge for us. Uh, We've been using a conversion, like A-B testing platform called Convert. And we've seen huge improvements in our conversion rates and our AOVs over the past couple of months through these tests. And we also have added, this is a really good one. Everyone should write this down. It's a Shopify app and it's called Order Bump. And this is a really excellent AOV driver. So write that down. Perfect. And then for SMS, what do you what do you use, Jordan? We currently are using Attentive, and we have tried probably five different SMS platforms. And it's obviously really interesting because it's a totally new tool, and everybody kind of has different offerings. So it's been a lot of like testing around. But Attentive so far, I've I've been really impressed with. And then we also have like a Facebook SMS feature, a similar to SMS feature. It's Facebook Messenger. And right now we're working with Shop Message, and that's also been an interesting one to play around with because they give you some different. Not only can you like do a browsing cart abandon and post purchase, but you can also target anybody who's opted into that list with um, Facebook marketing ads. You know, you've mentioned from social to SMS to email you know, with CPA, which is alluding to a lot of the paid channels from what was your initial go-to-market approach from like a channel perspective? And then we can talk, you know, about how that's evolved over time. 
our top two that we really focused on uh, aside from like organic social that was number one out the gate we just went with like building organic social and then um step two was influencers and that was because i think we had an amazing community of influencers combining sharon kevin and i together and that was a really strong platform that that has it's like it's like a really low barrier to entry if you can find kind of the right influencers and they'll post about it and a lot of times you can do it at only the cost of good of the product when you're just getting started so that was step two then we started getting into performance marketing, which made a huge, huge difference. It's probably like the biggest um, like whammy when you get going, when you get it kind of hacked. But those were first three. And then we obviously, like right out the gate, we set up Klaviyo email. For, you know, I think that's that's super important. So maybe it goes building out social Klaviyo influencers performance. With the influencer side, were you explicitly asking them to post and I guess where should they post whether that be Instagram or YouTube or were you just sending them good product I never recommend just blanket sending anybody a product and like the biggest thing you do not want to do is find a mailing address and send to them because it will never be successful that's like the anti also the influencers not going to be happy like you don't just want to like blanket send to an address that you find so the main thing is making personal connections like influencers are are like real people and the key to influencer marketing is making like genuine real connections so like a good first step would be finding people who maybe are working with your competitors and who, who are really interacting with them or posting a lot for them and reaching out to them and seeing if they would be interested in trying your product. And also, I think a lot of people like they, they go out the gate like really big. They're like, oh, I want this like person with 10 million followers. Like I want them to post my product. And then you reach out and they don't answer. And of course, they're not going to answer because everybody's doing the same. And so I think I'm um, finding people who have like 50 to 100K followers who are who have great engagement. That's like the number one thing to check is engagement versus following. Reaching out to them, they're going to be really excited because they're not getting as many incoming requests. And if they're genuinely like a fan of nails or hair already, then of course they're going to want to check it out and they're going to post because they're like just kind of getting getting going. So I think that those are like two of the that's, that's the most important step in influencer marketing. And it's like as simple as just a DM because I get I get a lot of questions from people being like, should I email them? I'm like, no, they will never answer your email. DM them. Um, it'll be the easiest thing to do. Yeah. And be really clear in what, especially at the beginning, like at INH, our, our pieces are, are kind of expensive. And so like, it's really different from makeup where you can just like kind of blast makeup and, and it's, it's really inexpensive. So we had to be really, really particular because we had a very small budget and we need to make sure that whoever we we're gifting the product to was for sure going to post for sure. Like we need at least 75% of the gifts. That's kind of our goal to be posted. Um, and at the beginning it was like hundred percent. And so when you reach out to these people, making it really personal, being really genuine, but then also being very clear in what you need back. And if you don't know what you need back, <laughs> I would recommend getting at least like three story frames with a swipe up. If they're big enough for a swipe up, give them a coupon code. Like it does not hurt you to give them a coupon code. And that way you can also track conversion. And then if they'll do a fee to post, that's great too. Too, but bare minimum, I would go for story. And most people are willing to give you like a three to five frame story in exchange for product. That's awesome. And with, but with, I guess, initiating the relationship, are you mostly just poking around their social feed and sending them like nice messages to like warm it up? Are you going in for the kill from the beginning? Does it, does it depend? How do you approach that? We usually do kind of an all at once approach. Um, we'll usually like like a bunch of their photos, comment on a bunch of their photos and then DM them. So that way they really see like you're in their feed, especially with somebody with high engagement. And our team is also just like really, our entire team is like really active and up to date with, with influencers. And so it'll be like multiple people from our team, like reaching out and chatting with them and following up. And because I think you made a note earlier, like once you start expanding your community, your like customer community is a lot to keep up and it's the exact same with influencers. And so you definitely need to get some like other people on board to help you with the engagement. But on top of that, the easiest way to do it is if you get success with one influencer posting your product, yes. look at who yes. they're following and who is following them. Because most likely those influencers saw her content and it, at least it's like on the back of their mind, like, oh yeah, like this sounds familiar. Like I should check mm -hmm. this out, you know? Mm -hmm. So targeting um their influencer friends is going to be the easiest way to do it yeah that's a great call out we can go so deep on so many of these topics it's honestly like a master class and like a lot of <laughs> these things because it requires a lot of work and a lot of persistence and even you know people might say well inh you know you've been around for two years and seen explosive growth which is again insanely impressive but a lot of that was the foundation that you had from let's say the six to eight years at ColourPop before where you you learned so much of this and 
you know, people I think are always looking for these simple hacks to like shortcut everything. And there's nothing that's necessarily going to shortcut that success. But like you said, it's just, just some of the basic stuff. Like, you know, we got influencer X to post this. Mm-hmm. Well, who's following them? Because, mm-hmm. you know, naturally they're going to have heard of you before. And so when you mention influencer, which is such a key part of your strategy in getting the word out there, Jordan, is that your job? Sharon, is that your job? Is that like new hire interns job? Is that the company's job? And that's like something you look for, like in the ethos of the people that you hire? How do you approach that? I mean, it's definitely evolved over time. At the very beginning, it was all of our jobs. So Sharon, Kevin and I, like we literally all night, like every day, all night, all weekend, we're just DMing people, like personally from our personal accounts, from the INH account, like that's all we ever did. So at, at that point, it was definitely an all-in approach. But then as we've grown and scaled, I guess a little bit of how, how it's divided, which you can probably tell a little bit by how we're responding questions, is Sharon oversees like basically anything visual. So that's the website, um, all the social media channels, and product, development. and product development. And then I oversee any of our like retention funnels, influencer marketing, PR, etc., so it's a little bit of the split. And so we do now have an influencer team. Their responsibility is like influencer relations. And, and that was also one of my main roles at, when I was at ColourPop is influencer relations. So I learned a ton there. But then also that's something that's so valuable because you carry them with you like forever. If you're doing a good job at your job, then you're going to be able to take those like anywhere you go. And, and they're real genuine relationships. Like some of the people that have posted INH early on, we didn't even ask them to post like they bought the product when they heard that it was ours. And they were like major people like Desi Perkins. We were like shook last Halloween. Every single Halloween look she did was with our wigs and we didn't even ask her to. And she just, it's because we've known her for so long. And so we've been super fortunate, but I think it is a key part to success. And with the influencers, when you're reaching out to them, are you offering to send them the stuff for free? And then the ask is that they post it. Are you offering them a commission based off of how much they send? Are you writing them a blank check? Like how do, how do you approach that? For the most part, we just gift um, product in exchange for posts. And our, okay. our like ask is really reasonable. And like I said, we say it like upfront before we send the product that works fairly well when you're targeting kind of smaller influencers. Nice. And so you leave it like open-ended, like if you want an affiliate code, like let us know because a lot of them want to commission off of what they're talking on talking about, which is fine for us. It's better mm-hmm. for us that they do that. So I know we're almost at the top of the hour. So I'm going to try to get through just a couple more questions. Performance marketing. You didn't start there. It can be expensive. The con of performance marketing is once you turn off the faucet, it dries up. Do you do that in-house? Do you outsource it? And, and how do you, how do you approach performance marketing? We do performance marketing in-house. And we started off with like a really small test budget and we're just trying to kind of optimize for content because I think one of the trickiest parts about performance marketing is not like the performance marketing itself, but getting enough content to actually like test and see what's working, what's not working. I think that's one of the hardest parts for startup brands. So we start off with a tiny, tiny budget and then we've just gradually scaled it. But you, it is something that you have to be really careful with and you definitely have to understand like how much you're willing to spend on a customer. And when you shut it off, like you're, we always say, well, I guess it's like, I don't know how much we can cuss on here, but Facebook right. is, yeah, we always say that we're Facebook's bitch because if, if <laughs> Facebook is like having some kind of crazy thing, like the elections right now, like you feel it. And so that it kind of sucks because it takes a lot of the power out of your hands when Sharon and I are used to like organic marketing, like pure organic marketing. So when you get Facebook in the mix, like some of it's completely out of your control and that can be really frustrating. Yeah. Yeah, I always view it as, I mean, it's sometimes it's like this necessary evil to help you scale, but it's this balance because it's it's really this treadmill and it's tough to get off the treadmill. And so mm-hmm. that's just where I love to hear how community and some of the other channels were the focus early on. Here's a question from, here's actually a tough one. Another one from, from Maria. What's your why? I think personally for me, I love building community, like the stickiness aspect. Like I'm such a psychopath, but I like read through every single comment that you could possibly think of or like post and hearing like their emotional connection with the brand and how we've changed their life really just hits home for me. And it reminds me every single time, like, this is why I do what I do. This is why I wake up every day. And this is why I love building brands because I love emotionally connecting with consumers through a product. So that's my why. Jordan? I would say very similar. I I love building brands. I love like building the community. I love like optimizing a brand like by like I love combining the building a community with like reacting to a community because I do think there's like kind of an art there of 
like this is who's following us like how do we give them what they want and how do we continue this growth it's kind of like psychology in a way and i think it's just so fun because you're growing together and i think our connection like with our community is really really strong and and it's it's so helpful because it it does help like drive the ship but then it's also just fun to like surprise and delight and make new product and sometimes they hate it but sometimes they really love it it's so fun the emotional aspects of course are just so important how do you take that those learnings over time and feed that into your copy whether it be on your website or social media from a product development standpoint like we take exactly what they tell us like if they say Hey, I noticed that this is a little better. And I'm like, oh, great. That's a good point. And then I make the revisions with the product development team. We're super, super reactive. And they see that. They'll even message us and be like, hey, I noticed that you guys fixed this like after we talked about it. And I'm like, yeah. So we're just really on top of their feedback and we apply them real time. Awesome. And the same with copy. We take the copy, like if they're saying, I want something natural, then when we lo- we use their word, we're like natural. Like we just, whatever they're saying is what we use in the copy. So I'll end it with the last question that I always ask everybody. But before we get there, you know, Jordan, Sharon, just really appreciate you both taking the time. I know you're busy to say the least, but just really appreciative of, you know, you you spending the last hour with us. I definitely learned a lot. It's, it's exciting to hear your story. And so, and I know the audience is extremely excited as well. And we were, we'll be here next week, just as we are every week, Wednesday, three o'clock Eastern time. We actually have next week, the CEO of Big Commerce, Brent Bellum, who just took Big Commerce public, what was it now, five weeks ago, they've experienced quite the tidal wave in a good way, or I should say rocket ship explosion since they went public. And so I'm excited to dig into some of the details there. But Jordan and Sharon, you can decide who goes first and who goes second. What is your number one piece of advice for an entrepreneur today? Mine would be be super selective in who you partner with. I think everybody told me this at the beginning and everybody always told me like, don't ever work with your friends. And I think in the most, in most cases, that's the truth, but Sharon and I really worked it out, but I think your partners and what they bring to the table and how they're going to handle a crisis is so, so important. Like, are they going to pull the same weight as you? And can you trust them? Like, I think that's one of the most important things that I've learned in, in really any of my business history. I think for me is just be open to learning. I feel like when you are an entrepreneur, it's easy to be like stubborn and defensive when people are teaching you, but be open to it because that will inspire new ideas for you and can open so many more doors. So being really open to learning. And then number two is being kind because whatever you put out into the world will come back to you. And then number three is just lean on your network. I feel like a lot of times people don't really do that. I, when we were first starting, I was DMing, like huge CEOs, like Tony Co being like, I'm a huge fan of yours. Like I would love if I could talk to you. And she actually DM me back. Like she <laughs> sold Nix for $300 million to L'Oreal and she DM me back and I met with her and we like talked and now like I'm actually on her board of advisors. So it's just, nothing's impossible and you have to go for it and you just have to get rid of your ego. I love that. You, you don't know until you ask. The answer is no until you ask. Mm-hmm. So People, partners, open to learning, be kind, lean on your network. Jordan, Sharon, this is amazing. I really appreciate it. Best of luck in you know the rest of this year and, and next year and beyond. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you so much, guys.